we were thinking of all the wild times that we used to have. When we would creep into a Holiday Inn bathroom, all of us in the dead of night, unwrap a bar of soap and leave it unused the following morning. It's one o'clock and time for lunch. Bum da dum de dum. When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. I court jester, Mr. Peter Gabriel, would probably like to say a few words. Contrary to public opinion, we were not taking the night off to watch the elephants mating at the zoo. This is David Colosi with another episode of the Napping Wizard Sessions. In my multi-part series called Peter Gabriel the Stories, I'm featuring the tales that Peter Gabriel told as introductions and time fillers between songs while he was in the band Genesis from the years 1967 to 1975. In part one, I covered the green trouser suit story, some early singles, the stagnation story from Trespass, and the musical box from Nursery Crime. In part two of the series, I'll pick up where I left off and continue with the stories from the Nursery Crime group. Then I'll move on to those from Foxtrot, Selling England by the Pound, and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. I won't be playing the songs, just the stories. So here is Peter Gabriel, The Stories, Part 2. Came here by a few today and uh, rushed down the stairs in Piccadilly Circus. The whole place was completely deserted. There was not a person to be seen anywhere. So as I was about to purchase my ticket, I noticed this bird, a pigeon, flying round and round and round and round, obviously unable to find the Shaftesbury Avenue exit. I said, hello, little bird, and the pigeon dropped dead. The next song on Nursery Crime that has a story is The Return of the Giant Hogweed. The idea was ripped from the headlines. In 1970, there were many reports of children suffering from burns and blisters as a result of touching the invasive Heracleum mantagazianum, or the giant hogweed. It seems to have spread to London from Kew Gardens. Many earlier Genesis songs came from Greek myths and the Bible, so all of them, with maybe Peter the most, were clearly drawing from these types of stories and fables, which fits with the breadth of prog rock. But sometimes they came from the headlines. The return of the giant hogweed is just as mythical. The stories Peter tells preceding the song are interesting not in the tale they tell, but more in the odd references and people they throw into the mix. Some of the audio is difficult to hear, so I'll read the less comprehensible parts after Peter tells his tale. I'll begin with a version from the Imperial College of London on November 18, 1972. Absolutely, also, this night is a terrible, exceptionally large weed. <laughs> <laughs> this weed, as some of you may know, affectionately as Eric Lamb, went to Gazzianum. 
has very strange capabilities, contains within its branches, within its stems, certain pricks or prickles which are capable of entering human flesh and damaging it severely, which is of course most entertaining. England, they open to attack. It was a dark, dark night. A hot weeks were assembling around England's watery entrances. The power was growing and growing and growing. Are we completely ready? This then is the return of the child. In case you couldn't make that out, I'll read it. Peter says, This one, actually, the last number of this night, it's a terribly and exceptionally large weed. This weed, as some of you may know affectionately as Heracleum montigazianum, has very strange capabilities. It contains within its branches, within its stems, certain pricks and prickles which are capable of puncturing human flesh and damaging it severely. This, of course, is the most mundane. England lay open to attack. It was a dark, dark night. The hogweeds were assembling around England's watery entrances. Their power was growing and growing and growing. Are we completely ready? Then this is the return of the giant hogweed. The end of that, when you hear Peter ask, are we completely ready? This is an instance where the story is used as filler while the band tunes. Many times in these recordings, after the story is finished, Peter and Phil Collins need to break into a one-handed drum solo bit to kill more time, or Peter will go into narrating what the roadie is doing. Anyway, the next version of The Return of the Giant Hogweed comes from the National Stadium in Dublin on September 28, 1972, and this, you'll remember, is the show where he famously first appeared in the foxhead and red dress just before the performance of The Musical Box. I didn't play that version of The Musical Box because the audio quality is bad. Peter's band members would complain, especially during the Lamb Tour, that the masks got in between the microphone and Peter's mouth, making the lyrics hard to get out. Since there aren't as many good recordings of the story narrations before the return of the giant hogweed, I'm playing this one where he introduces some interesting characters. This is the critical tale of an exceptionally large weed. Weed! A failed evolution. This was a, actually affectionately known as Heraclea Manticaziano, or the giant of weed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this number stars Vincent Price and Christopher Lee. Comes to you, courtesy of the Hogweed Youth Movement. Courtesy of the House of Hammer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is our proud pleasure to present for you tonight, a little number, our last number, 
Peter is fitting this current event into the horror film genre. Like many of the films that Vincent Price and Christopher Lee starred in, someone or something was often rising from the dead or coming back for more, just as the giant hogweed does. And you can see by this introduction of the song, Peter tried to terrify the crowd with their last number. While the House of Hammer refers to the British Horror Film Production Company, the Hogweed Youth Movement is a different kind of organization. It was the official name of the Genesis fan club at the time. The next story comes from the Technical College in Watford, Hertfordshire, England, on March 4, 1972, where he introduces more people. What we've done just to brighten up the occasion is we've disguised six people to look exactly like John Lennon. Now, if you can correctly identify the real John Lennon, tap him on the left shoulder and say into his ear, Hello, Bouncy Bouncy, what are you doing after the show? You'll win yourself a golden opportunity to enter the Spot Spiny Norman competition. Spiny Norman is here with one imposter. If you can correctly identify the real Spiny Norman, you'll win yourself a glorious, sun-filled honeymoon holiday with our Prime Minister, Edward East, on board the Monarch flag. Another to be missed opportunity. John Lennon, Spiny Norman, and the Prime Minister Edward Heath make cameos in this introduction to the song. Spiny Norman is an imaginary hedgehog from an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus that aired in 1970. Here's what Peter said in case you can't make out all of it. What we've done on this tour to brighten up the occasion is we've disguised six people to look exactly like John Lennon. Now, if you can directly identify the real John Lennon, tap him on the left shoulder and say into his ear, Hello, Bamsy Gamsy, what you doing after the show? You'll win yourself a golden opportunity to enter the Spot Spiny Norman competition. Spiny Norman is here with one imposter. If you can correctly identify the real Spiny Norman, You'll win yourself a glorious, sun-filled honeymoon holiday with our Prime Minister Edward Heath on board. Another not-to-be-missed opportunity. This is our last number tonight. It's called The Return of the Giant Hogweed. The next telling is from the Sully Hall Civic Hall, England, July 25, 1972. This is the last one tonight, and it tells a very large weed. The weed is now affectionately as hairy cloud, magic as the arm, or the jar of hog weed. This number starts with some price comes to you courtesy of the House of Hammer and the Hogweed Youth Movement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present the 
information is basically the same with Heracleum Montegazianum and Vincent Price, but this time it's brought to you courtesy of the House of Dunlop along with the Hogweed Youth Movement. And there's one more version of this introduction from the Reading Festival in Reading, Berkshire, England, August 11th, 1972. That's what I'm doing tonight is a tale of an incredibly large weed. This one is dedicated to all the policemen in the audience. And anyone else, if there is anyone else. This is called the return of the giant. No, uh, we're not ready. Tremendous dramatic beginning for the return of the giant hogweed. I'm not exactly sure about the reference to the police in the audience, and I don't know if any costumes came later that were associated with the hogweed, but these are the only stories I was able to find. So the other song from Nursery Crime that has a story is the Fountain of Salmasis. And rather than being ripped from the headlines, this one is taken from a Greek myth about the first hermaphrodite. This is how Peter tells the story at the Charlois Festival at the Palais de Beaux-Arts, Charlois, Belgium, on January 23, 1972. This is from Nursery Crime, and it uh, tells the tale of the first hermaphrodite who is uh, the son of Hermes and Aphrodite and his name is Hermaphroditus and he goes for a walk in the woods and sees this nymph Salmasis and he's uh, much taken with this nymph Salmasis she has plenty of uh, and uh, the nymph Salmasis is very much taken with him too and she looks up to the heavens and prays and all of a sudden the woman and the man are joined together producing only one the first hermaphrodite this is uh, called the fountain of Salmasis or La Fontaine de Salmasis, if you've heard. The story is pulled straight from Greek mythology. While Gabriel doesn't embellish it with any particular narrative additions, except in this version he says that Hermaphroditus was equally interested in Salmasis, which apparently he was not, the band certainly contributed many musical additions. This is the song that they first added the Mellotron to, an instrument they purchased from King Crimson. I don't know the relevance of the subject matter of hermaphrodite and androgyny in general for the band, but as these shows were in 1972, one can't ignore that Peter would wear the red dress in an old boxing ring in Dublin in September of that year, at the same time that Ziggy Stardust was bringing gender questions to rock and roll. And the general influence of femininity on maleness perpetuated by the mythology of this fountain, which remains a tourist attraction in present-day Turkey, 
had already become a big thing in the 1960s when rockers were becoming long hairs and suffering from the discrimination and abuse that came along with that. David Bowie, in 1964, at the age of 17, had announced the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Men with Long Hair. Bruce Springsteen tells the story of his father hating his long hair so much that after the musician was laid up in bed from a motorcycle accident, his father hired a barber to come over and cut it. And Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had a 1970 song called Almost Cut My Hair. I have no idea if Peter and the band were putting the story and song in this context, but what seems more certain is that it fit in with Gabriel's interest in youthful romantic lust. This next version is from the Technical College in Watford, Hertfordshire, England, on March 4th, 1972. That's and his parents, the dogs, Hermes and Aphrodite, were very ashamed that he existed at all. So they stuck him on a mountain in the middle of Greece in the hope that he would never reach anybody and no one would discover his existence. Years on the mountain, he went walking one day and he went through these trees until he came across this lake that he'd never seen before. And when he went down to the water's edge, there seemed to be something swimming towards him from the bottom of the lake. And sure enough, this was a fully grown water nymph. The water nymph was named Salmasis, and she'd been 350 years at the bottom of the lake without a male. And the effect of this virile young man was really too much for her metabolism. And she was filled with lust and other commodities. Her seduction was a total failure. So in desperation, she looked up to the heavens and said, Dear gods, I beg that we two down here shall never be separated. And the gods, being crafty old bastards, sent down this big black cloud, melted the man and the woman, and bound them all together in one neat little hermaphrodite. The boy did not this at all, actually, and he laid a curse on the water, turning all who touched it into hermaphrodites likewise. This song is dedicated to, to the Tesco chain of supermarkets, without whom none of this would have been possible. It's called The Phantom of Sunrises. And this last version I'll play is from the Solihull Civic Hall, England, July 25th, 1972. Uh, this is the last time I've been doing some of these numbers in Britain. And uh, the next one, the tale of uh, the day in the car, we were singing before. They can't survive, they can't they saw, they got a little fair hair, they can't walk into the woods. Aha, uh-huh, they said. And then their eyes looked at the little flower, and they saw a lake with a lady woman in it. Water them, sunning herself at the bottom of the lake. Aha, they said, there's a lady water sunning herself at the bottom of the lake. What fun it would be for these two to meet. So meet they did. The young lady water was full of lust. 
and other meaningful things. But her seduction, as she began it, was a total failure. So she looked up to the heavens and said, Dear gods, I beg that we two down here shall never be separated. And the gods, being crafty old bastards, sent down a big black cloud, melted the flesh of the male body, and then of the female body, and slowly merged them all together. This produced the very first anaphrodite, the only prototype and couldn't float. <laughs> this is called Phantom Sarnasis. The beginning of that version is a little difficult to hear, so I'll read it out. This is the last time we're doing some of these numbers in Britain. And this next one is the tale of a day when the gods were exceedingly bored. They cast their eyes down to planet Earth and saw a young, fair-haired Greek demigod walking through the woods. Aha, they said, look at that young Greek fair-haired demigod walking through the woods. And then their eyes looked a little further, and they saw the lake with the lady water nymph sunning herself at the bottom of the lake. Aha, they said, there's a lady water nymph sunning herself at the bottom of the lake. What fun it would be for these two to meet. So meet they did. The young lady water nymph was full of lust and other meaningful things. But her seduction as she began it was a terrible failure. So she looked up to the heavens and said, Dear gods, I beg that we two down here shall never be separated. And the gods, being crafty old bastards, sent down a big black cloud, melted the flesh off the male body, and then off the female body, and slowly merged them all together. This produced the very first hermaphrodite, the prototype who couldn't float. This is called the Fountain of Salmasis. And that's the last version of the Fountain of Salmasis I will play, and it's the last story from the nursery crime grouping. The scattered pages of a book by the sea Held by the sand, washed by the waves A shadow forms Since the Foxtrot Tour was the one where the Foxhead Mask and Red Dress debuted, a few of the songs have stories by this time. And some of them only appear on that first, now famous Dublin 1972 show. The most epic song that Genesis ever made is Supper's Ready, clocking in at 23 minutes, just about the maximum length that could fit on an LP side in the 1970s, and it's included on Foxtrot, their fourth studio release. And it, comparably, has an epic story to go along with it. But first, there are three other songs from the Foxtrot group that have stories, or, like those singles I played earlier, log lines. They are Watcher of the Skies, Get Em Out by Friday, and Can Utility and the Coastliners. So I'll play those first before getting to Michael and the Worms, which is the story that most frequently preceded Supper's Ready. We don't know much about the narrative of Watcher of the Skies, except that the lyrics tell us it's about the end of the human relationship with Earth. All we know about the identity of this Watcher is maybe what Peter tells us at the Reading Festival in Reading, Berkshire, England, on August 11, 1972. 
This next little one tells of a gentleman from the planet Mars who's alive and well and living in Platon. This is called Water of the Skies. It's about a gentleman from Mars who is living in Clapham, but he does give us an alternate identity at the National Stadium in Dublin on September 28, 1972. This is concerning the all-powerful gentleman who revealed himself from the skies to us mortals on Earth. He appeared in liquid form and revealed himself as none other than the great god Coca-Cola. This is for him, it's called Watcher of the Skies. Here, the Watcher of the Skies is presented not as being from Mars, but as the all-powerful gentleman who revealed himself from the skies to us mortals on Earth in liquid form as none other than the great god Coca-Cola. At the finish of this song at this venue, while the band tuned for the musical box, Peter would step backstage and put on the fox head and his wife's red dress for the first time. Then, after shocking his own band and the audience and impressing Melody Maker, in this same Dublin 1972 show, he would introduce and announce the next number this way. Well, the uh, story of two old ladies being shifted out of their house. It's entitled, Get a Man to Mark Friday. It is, of course, not to be misinterpreted with a rival song called Getting Down by Friday. The audience and band, with the exception of Phil, always ready with a rim shot, might be a little too confused from the previous stunt to get the revival song Get Em Down by Friday joke. But they carry on with the song anyway. And if the story isn't clear about these two old ladies who are being shifted out of their house, then the lyrics to Get Em Out by Friday make it clear that one John Pebble of the real estate company Styx Enterprises and later of United Black Springs International, is in the business of buying inhabited properties, evicting the tenants and flipping them for seven times what he paid. His manservant, the Winkler, delivers the bad news to two old women, Mrs. Barrow and her friend Mary, who, once they are talked into relocating, find at the new location a higher rent than promised and also a human height restriction of four feet so that the management can fit twice as many people in the same building. But during the show at De Montfort Hall, Leicester, England, on February 25, 1973, Peter offers this alternative narrative. This is actually our mock social conscience number. But beneath these uh, heart-rending words will be found for those people who like to look into words and read between the lines, generally waste time, a passionate love story concerning two rather unidentifiable personages, namely a female butterfly and a male Alsatian dog. Their relationship was full of hang-ups. This is called Get Em Out by Friday. 
Peter seems to be aware here of what his fans are trying to do with their songs and his stories, namely to read between the lines and find some sort of meaning. And the relationship between the lyrics and the mythical and historical references certainly encourage this, as in the case with Can Utility and the Coastliners, also from Foxtrot. The Can Utility of the title is said to be a phonetic play on King Canute, King of Denmark, England, and Norway. And the Coastliners are to be his followers who believed their king to be the master of everything in the universe. This led the king, who was irritated by this ridiculous notion, to prove them wrong by placing his throne on the beach and letting the waves engulf him, demonstrating his powerlessness with the sea. Here is an introduction from that infamous show at the National Stadium in Dublin on September 28, 1972. This is the tale of a gentleman who went to the seaside and started waving at the waves. This was a brave attempt to stop motion within the waves. Unfortunately, it was complete failure. The immortal words of Edmund and Ross, can you tell it in the coastlines? So this gentleman who was waving at the waves in a brave attempt to stop their motion failed. At the end, Peter attributes the title to the immortal words of Edwin LaRoss or Edwin Ross, I don't know who this is. I'm sure there's a joke I'm missing here. Walking across the sitting room, I turn the television off. Sitting beside you, I look into your eyes as the sound of motor cars. Now, if we're going to start talking about the general waste of time and reading between the lines of the lyrics and the music, Perhaps the best place to start is with the song Supper's Ready. This 23-minute epic changes keys and tempo multiple times, and the narrative shifts drastically throughout it. But I'm not here to talk about the lyrics or interpret the song. I'm here to talk about the story that preceded Supper's Ready. And considering the lyrics and their biblical and mythological references, the story of Michael and the Worms is far less complex, but no less of a fable. I'm going to let Peter tell the story, and I'll present it as it evolves. Six saintly shrouded men move across the lawn slowly. The seventh walks in front with a cross held high in hand. And it's, hey babe, your supper's waiting for you. Well, the short answer to the title of Supper's Ready, Peter tells us himself at the Imperial College London on November 18th, 1972. It was inspired by a shout from across the block of flats, someone yelling, Supper's Ready! That's the quick answer, but it's not the most imaginative one. There are all sorts of theories, like one about a particular supernatural experience that Peter and his wife shared that led to the lyrics of this song. But none of the interpretations include any reference to Old Michael and the Worm King. But just before I get to that, to put this in a little bit more context, if the costume of the fox head and red dress came in September of 1972, 
and it was inspired by the LP cover illustration of Foxtrot, then it was with the release of Foxtrot that all of Peter's costumes and the more elaborate stories followed. In Peter's words, he remembered a visceral sense of shock and silence when he first stepped out wearing that costume at the former boxing ring in Dublin. His response was, Well, that's interesting. I'll do a bit more of that. And so he did. It sounds like the batwing hat and ultraviolet eye makeup that Peter wore for Watcher of the Skies might have been the first costume, but the old man mask for the musical box, the flower and red Magog head for Supper's Ready, Britannia for Dancing with the Moonlit Night, the stocking, kipper tie, and waistcoat of the Reverend in The Battle of Epping Forest, Rail and the Slipper Men for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and all of the others certainly came after Peter broke the dam with the fox head and red dress. Now, all of the other band members of Genesis were consummate musicians, and it's not that Peter wasn't, but his role was more in the idea department. His greatest contribution was embracing the role of the front man. This included having a unique and powerful voice, writing imaginative lyrics, the attention-getting costumes, the odd stage antics, and entertaining the audience between songs with twisted stories. So if Supper's Ready was already a near half-hour song with complex music and complex lyrics and complex costumes, why would he layer another story on top of that? Well, the best answer is, why not? So he added this intro to this dense song. This narration comes from De Montfort Hall in Leicester, England, on February 25th, 1973. Old Michael was walking down the street past the pet shop, which was never open, into the park, which was never closed. And he sat down on the bench all by himself to feed his words to the birds. But the birds weren't hungry. Hmm, thought Michael to himself. If I can't get in their bloody brains, I'll get in their bloody stomachs. So he took all his clothes off. Then with his ten toes and ten fingers, he began to tap out a little tune. It went something like this. This was the musical highlight in old Michael's life. The inhabitants of the terrain beneath the ground, commonly known to us mortal beings as worms. They were very turned on by this musical experience. The king worm, who was a five-inch slob, declared that the pitter-patter they were hearing from above was nothing but rainfall. And worms, as you know, being dirty creatures, are very partial to bathing themselves when it rains. And within seconds, the entire surface of the park was a sea of swarming worms. Swarming worms. Old Michael was incredibly happy. And he looked up in the sky and began to whistle a tune. It went something like this.
conformed to. <laughs> the result of this little whistling tune was astounding because in bird language, the tune he just whistled meant supper is ready. That Leicester performance was actually one of those that was recorded and used for the release of Genesis Live, their first live recording. But released as a single LP, Supper's Ready wasn't included. But more importantly, this is our first introduction to Michael and his worm dance. As we listen to more, you can hear that Peter has certain patterns memorized, but he ad-libs some of the other parts. Here he is at the Felt Forum in New York City, on November 22, 1973. Old Michael walked past the It was never opened, into the park, it was never closed. And the park was very clean, very green and very smooth. So old Michael took off all his clothes and rubbed his very pink flesh into the very clean, green grass. This gave him a lot of pleasure. He covered himself with a little tube. Michael is wriggling among the mass of dirty brown worms. The green trouser suit story, as odd and imaginative as this one, had caught the attention of Michael Friedkin, director of The Exorcist, 
who invited Peter to contribute on films as an idea man. It seems as though Peter couldn't take him up on that offer because of the demands of the band, but it's from stories and encouragement like this that Peter's narrative and filmic visions start to blossom, probably most demonstrated in The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which, legend has it, he collaborated on a film script with filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky, but more on that later. For now, I'll take us back to the Roxy in Los Angeles with Peter in a Santa suit on December 19, 1973, where Michael and the Worms reappear. And now a little courtesy presentation from the Actors' Union on the Genesis team, a special Christmas presentation of Timothy Stewart in his glory. <laughs> Old Michael walked past the pet shop, which was never open, into the park, which was never closed. And the park was looking remarkably clean, green, and very smooth. So he took off all his clothes and began to rub his flabby pink flesh into the cool, green, smooth grass of the park. He accompanied himself with a little tune. interpreted the pitter-patter as meaning rainfall, and rainfall meaningful is only bath time and mating time, and both of these experiences are extremely pleasurable to worms, and only worms. So within seconds the entire smooth green surface of the park was a mass or a veritable sea of dirty brown swarming swirling worms. <coughs> Old Michael smiled and continued to rub his flesh into the dirty brown mass. Only this time he whistled a little tune. This is some fantastically spontaneous percussion accompaniment from the wonderful delicate fingers of Philip Collins. funky to be successful these days. Uh, last number before our Christmas holidays. Thank you very much for coming. 
Not the little birds in the sky interpreted. The little tune, the idiotic little tune, as meaningful that supper was ready. Phil Collins willingly played the role of Peter's sideman in these bits. They seem to have gotten along really well as a comic duo, and Collins certainly took to the role after Gabriel left the band, becoming the next entertaining frontman, all the while still doubling on drums. They do a triangle sketch or a one-handed drum solo to kill time for transitions, but it's during this story that they consistently collaborate on this Jerusalem bit. I first recognized the song they whistle from their prog rock contemporaries, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who arranged a song called Jerusalem that sounds just like this. But it turns out they adapted it from a traditional English hymn by Hubert Perry. The theme of Jerusalem plays into the end section of Supper's Ready, so this at least gives Michael and his worms a way into the song. Here is Peter again with the story, this time from the Student Auditorium in Toledo, Ohio, on April 6, 1974. The middle-aged man with was called Old Michael. And as he walked past the pet shop, which was never open, into the park, which was never closed, he saw that the grass of the park was very cool, very clean, very green. He looked at himself, he was very dirty, very flabby, and very fat. And so he took off his clothes and began to rub his flabby flesh into the cool, clean, green grass. He made a little scratching sound, and he accompanied the scratching sound with a little tapping of his fingers. interpreted by the worms as meaningful, as meaning rainfall, and rainfall to worms means two things. One, bath time, grass to keep clean. Two, mating time, worms like to keep dirty. <laughs> Within seconds, the entire cool, clean, green surface of the park was a mass, a sea of dirty, proud, swarming worms. Old Michael continued to rub his flabby flesh into the dirty brown mess. The noise was a little different, but old Michael's son smiled. They smiled. And whistled a little boogie. Thank <laughs> you. 
serious. You can hear Peter and Phil are getting more into it as they go. So what the story consistently tells us is that old Michael's self-pleasuring percussive experience inspires the worms, who think the strange sounds mean it's raining, to come to the surface, which in turn announces to the birds that it's feeding time. Old Michael seems to have control over a good part of his ecosystem. Here's another one from the Ford Auditorium, Detroit, Michigan, April 16th, 1974. We uh, continue with the consequences of Old Michael and his adventures in the park. He went into the park, and the park looked cool, clean, and green. So we took off all his clothes and began to rub his pink, flabby flesh into the cool, clean, green grass. It made a little scratching sound upon the hard bristle of the grass and recovered himself with a little tapping of the fingers. Not unlike this. Beneath the ground, old Michael caused a bit of chaos because the inhabitants known merely to us mortals as worms interpreted the little bitter patter coming from the surface as meaningful, as meaning rainfall. And rainfall to worms means two things. One, bath time, because as you probably know, worms like to keep very clean. Two, mating time, because as you probably didn't know, worms like to keep very dirty. Within seconds, the entire clean, green, smooth surface of the park was a mass, a sea of dirty, brown, swarming, mating worms. Old Michael continued to rub his pink, flabby flesh into the dirty brown mess, only this time it made a different sound. 
and he smiled and sung a little tune. <coughs> Phil. This is it. Such technique, such talent. What a wonderful entertainer. That is a traditional English hymn. And up in the sky, this little hymn was interpreted by the birds, thousands and millions of birds, as meaning time for supper is ready. That time, Peter and Phil sing the traditional ancient hymn, or as Peter calls it, her. You can see by 1974, Peter is pretty comfortable with this story. So finally, I'll play one more from the New York Academy of Music on May 6th, 1974. This actually tells what happened to Michael, who was a little worried by the lack of protein in his diet and used to rush down to the park at night times to grab his daily quotient of worms. He achieved this remarkable dietary addition by taking off his clothes, kneeling down on the ground, rubbing his pink flabby flesh upon the surface and tapping with his ten fingers. It sounded a little like this. This delightful little episode was interpreted beneath the ground by the worms as meaning rainfall. And rainfall to worms means two things. Firstly, as you probably know, bath time, because worms like to keep very clean. Two, mating time, as you probably didn't know, worms like to keep very dirty too. A cheap joke. Within seconds, the entire worm colony was ordered to the surface of the park. The surface of the park became a sea of swarming, mating, dirty brown worms. Old Michael continued to rub his pink flabby flesh into the dirty brown mess. The sound was a little different. And he smiled. And whistled his sweet, charming little song. Phil Collins, percussionist extraordinaire.
this sensational musical chapter was interpreted up in the heavens where thousands and thousands of birds had gathered as being a signal, a signal for supper's ready. So now you get the idea of Old Michael and the Worms. So if you don't know the song Supper's Ready, or if you've listened to it a million times like me, then I encourage you to go and listen to it now. It's one of the most remarkable songs musically, and when you read the lyrics along with it, you'll agree that it's one of the most remarkable songs lyrically, too. This has been part two of Peter Gabriel, The Stories on the Napping Wizard Sessions. I'm David Colosi. Tune in for part three, where I continue to explore Peter Gabriel as a storyteller from the early Genesis years with the tales from Selling England by the Pound and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Thank you for listening to the Napping Wizard Sessions. <laughs>